Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Dimcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we break down the results of Washington's first primary, about how it fits together with the emerging national picture, and about how both state Democrats and Indivisible members view the path to November. Joining us are Communications Director for the Washington State Democrats, Will Casey, and Indivisible Washington's 8th District founder, Chris Petzold. That is all ahead, so stay with us. Hey, gang, before we get started, I just want to share a couple things on coronavirus. First, I want to let you know that we will be talking next week with someone from the King County Executive's COVID-19 Operations Policy Support Team. Uh, I know we all have a lot of questions about testing, about the new restrictions, about the economic impact, and particularly as that pertains to our more vulnerable populations. So definitely stay tuned for that. Just very briefly, here's the latest that we know. So Today, on Thursday, March 12th, Governor Inslee just ordered that all K-12 schools in King, Pierce, and Snohomish counties be closed until April 24th. On Wednesday, in a joint press conference, Governor Inslee announced that the state will ban events with 250 people or more in King, Pierce, and Snohomish counties. And King County Executive Del Constantine has pushed even further on that, restricting gatherings with fewer than 250 people unless organizers do certain things to minimize risk, things like enforcing social distance, which, for the record, means limiting contact between people within six feet of each other for 10 minutes or longer. This whole thing, of course, is developing daily. And as I say, we're going to have more coverage next week to discuss the level of impact that is absolutely being felt across the region and the state. I do want to start this week by focusing briefly on one institution that is being impacted that many people in the Puget Sound region really rely on, and that is the stranger. And so in lieu of my weekly call to action, I have invited on our friend Rich Smith, who, of course, covers politics politics and the arts for the stranger. Uh, Rich, how are things? Uh, how are you holding up in the time of coronavirus? Uh, just about as well um, as it is for everybody else, except for the uh, mounting dead. Uh, <laughs> where, where things are pretty stressed out, uh, or stressful rather, uh, at the newspaper. We're all coronavirus reporters now, uh, in yeah. addition to covering uh, local and national politics and the, the work of advocates. So um, we're trying to do um, uh, what we can to, to keep up with the increased workload. Yeah, everybody who is in media in some form or other has officially become uh, conscripted, I think, into the fight against coronavirus. Um, and, you know, I've invited you on because The Stranger has a very specific financial ask for listeners to this podcast. But first, I got to ask you, uh, at Governor Inslee's joint presser, did you catch him doing the elbow bump with uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin? <laughs> I did not. He's. I saw him elbow bumping Vice Pe- Pence, or sorry, Vice President Pence when he came. I didn't know that he's uh, um, uh, bumping the mayor. I'm glad he's uh, demonstrating a good behavior, though. Yeah, I, I believe it's called uh, safe social distancing. Is that what? Yes. That's that. That is the new catchphrase. I'm one of those people who was a germaphobe before, so I'm kind of hoping that this is going to stick around afterwards. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like shaking people's hands. Generally speaking, it's nothing personal. I'm just just, um, yeah, I, I always think of my hands as being um, like, remember the, the game that you would play when you were on the kid in the playground? You'd be like, well, you can't go in that area because that's lava. All this is safe yeah. over here. But just, so I just, every time I shake hands with somebody, I'm like, my hands are lava. 
That's it. So <laughs> then I have to go wash them. That's a survival tactic now. <laughs> well, I'm an you know I'm somebody who has suffered from anxiety my whole life, and the way that I look at it is, I think the reason why you know people with my particular phobia have uh, why it's managed to make its way through the genetic swim all of these you know uh, centuries generations uh, is because we survive. Right, we're yeah. the ones scanning the horizon for danger, and we can yeah. run fast. So. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm the opposite. I, 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 I'm, I'm not good in these conditions. I'm an, I'm a hugger, and, uh, and so, I, and I'm, a, I'm a huge face toucher, and so I <laughs> oh my love God. my own face, not other people's face. No, understand. So I, so, so I have to really uh, control myself and do the, the heroic work of, uh, of being reserved in my uh, adulations and greetings. Have you noticed that the minute that you think don't touch your face, your nose starts to itch uncontrollably? Oh, absolutely. No. Absolutely. That's the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> we are strange beings, humans. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, as you alluded to, you have a very specific ask for readers. Most people who listen to this show uh, from the Puget Sound region rely on the strangers reporting. And I know that you guys are being hit very hard by the coronavirus. Talk about how and why. Yeah, well, we, we, we rely on um, on your readership, too. Uh, well, what, what happened was, uh, as uh, Inslee banned gatherings of over 250 uh, people in the state through March, excellent public health uh, decision. Uh, Executive uh, Dow Constantine banned gatherings uh, below 250 uh, if, uh, unless uh, those uh, venues can observe uh, appropriate uh, social distancing uh, protocols. Um, that means that people aren't getting together uh, in theaters, in um, uh, music venues, uh, in the numbers that they used to, which cuts drastically into the revenue stream of uh, uh our advertisers, basically, right. and uh, the stranger runs ninety uh, percent of its business is uh, runs on uh, advertising, ticketing fees, and events around social gatherings. Uh, so, uh, what happens to our advertisers uh, financially that happens to us, and so we're dealing with that blow. And uh, like everybody else, uh, we uh, need money uh, in order to keep. Uh, Printing news, uh, keep uh, uh, holding the powerful accountable, uh, and uh, shout at um, you know Mark Mullet basically for uh, cutting, <laughs> <laughs> cutting tax, cutting taxes for big corporations. Uh, so if uh, if if the Indivisible Podcast listeners uh, are, want that to continue, uh, we um, we would be pleased to have your support. Great. Well, where can people go specifically to contribute? Uh, it's uh, thestranger.com slash contribute. All right. Couldn't be easier. I'll have a link for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. Rich, uh, stay healthy, stay safe. And as always, uh, thanks for all the reporting that you do. And I will just say to people, I cannot encourage everybody listening enough to uh, financially support and keep afloat. Um, it's on your masthead, Seattle's only newspaper. So thanks for all of that, man. Uh, a healthy arm bump to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> one right back to you, my brother. <laughs> All right. Have a good one.
So Washington participated in its first primary on Tuesday, so I thought it'd be a good time to convene our panel to discuss it. And so joining us is Will Casey. He is the communications director for the Washington State Democratic Party. Hello, Will. Hey there, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. And also with us is our good friend, Chris Petzold. She is founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Chris. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to jump into the primary, but I have to check in with you guys just because of everything that is going on here at what has essentially been ground zero of the coronavirus epidemic here in the United States. Chris, you and I have both been in our respective homes cooped up and, and working uh, from home. That's normal for me, but it's not for you. How are, how are you holding up? Well, I've discovered that my kitchen table is not ergonomically correct. Um, and so I'm starting to have like shoulder pain. You're getting carpal tunnel, and, right? Know, first world problem here. Um, but, you know, I think in general, I just have this undercurrent of a lot of anxiety about it all. And yeah. I'm worried about people, you know, that we know that, you know, could get sick. And yeah, it's very, it's very worse, worrisome. And I, I'm also like super worried about small business owners and uh, people who work hourly jobs who are going to be impacted if they aren't already. Yeah. And in fact, I uh, just mentioned this in the intro, but we will be talking to a representative from King County next week about some of the economic impacts, about some of the more far reaching aspects of coronavirus, at least in terms of what we know right now. So I will just uh, ask people to put a pin in that and uh, we will definitely dig into some of those questions. Um, Will, I, I believe you've still been going into work in Seattle, yes? Uh, well, yesterday was election day, so definitely. Uh, and um, today and, and uh, throughout the past week or two, we've uh, been telecommuting as as appropriate uh, here at the party. So, you know, following all of our public health officials' uh, advice and, and trying to comply with all of those instructions. NBC recently called uh, Seattle a virtual ghost town. I know it's not quite as severe as that, but I haven't been into town. As listeners know, I live in Issaquah. What is it like in Seattle right now? Um, there's still a good number of people walking around, uh, you know, far fewer than you would normally see, uh, especially during peak uh, commuting hours, as a lot of folks uh, are trying to telecommute as well. But, you know, as Chris was saying, there's uh, thousands and thousands of folks who are working hourly jobs who, you know, don't have paid sick leave and you yeah. know, need to keep coming into work in order to, to pay their bills. So, um, you know, you've definitely seen some, uh, some traffic still downtown. Well, you know, these sorts of things are so far reaching, and I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface. So again, to listeners, uh, stay tuned for that. But for now, let's dig into the primary. So six states voted on what is being called now Big Tuesday, including us here in Washington. We are the second biggest prize with 89 delegates. Biden won in Michigan, Missouri, Mississippi, and Idaho. Sanders won in North Dakota. And it is still too close to call here in Washington as of 5 p.m. on Wednesday the 11th. Will, unless you have some, some update from me there. But um, let's talk about what it means that Biden came as close as he did, given not only how much Bernie had been favored as recently as February 24th, Bernie was favored by 21 points, according to 538, but also uh, considering how much he won the state by in 2016 with, I believe, 73 percent of the vote. Chris, let's start with you. Why do you think there was a major shift toward Biden here in Washington? Well, I am just trying to really absorb everything that's happened in the past 10 days or so. And uh, I'm just, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Biden, he had no ground game, no grassroots 
no, you know, you know, individual donors. <laughs> um, I, I don't really understand all, all that happened. Um, I think, of course, uh, there were some factors, uh, momentum coming from South Carolina and just Super Tuesday. And honestly, I think the coronavirus uh, also gave him some momentum. Well, I'll just toss basically the same question to you. Uh, but I, I, I want to get your take specifically on the issue of electability, because we've talked about that on this show and not necessarily in favorable ways. How much do you think electability was a factor in Biden's sudden and kind of miraculous rise? Uh, Well, I think it was an extremely uh, strong factor. Uh, I think it had a lot to do with his surge here in the state. And I think it's because, uh, you know, we've finally gotten into an era uh, of the primary, and I, I realize that there's a little bit of irony in using the word era to describe a period of a couple of days, but you know, that's what time feels <laughs> like in the Trump administration. Um, and I think that there is a, a certain aspect of that momentum because, you know, electability up until we started voting has always been an abstract conversation of people trying to project what they think other people are going to do and, and how other voters are going to make their minds up. And now we've got to see some real data. Uh, I think you, I think it's uh, for voters in Washington state who are, uh, and across the country in the Democratic primary, who are primarily concerned with the goal of beating Trump, uh, to see the overwhelmingly strong performance that, that Biden showed in South Carolina and, and on Super Tuesday, uh, as well as the endorsements of several other prominent candidates. Um, you know, that's that's a strong signal. And I think that, you know, folks who are focused on electability uh, finally got to see some actual elections take place and, and made their minds up accordingly. I think people are just petrified, uh, not only because of the coronavirus, but also they're just petrified of Trump. And they just I feel like they ran to safety, whatever the safest, safest guy was. And that's I think that helped Biden a lot. Well, let's shift over and talk about what is looking like a march toward the general election with Biden. And just for people listening, I am in no way writing off Bernie, uh, but even he and his own camp admit that his odds are very long at this point. So I want to talk with both of you about Biden as the potential nominee. And in particular, let's, Chris, we'll start with you. How do you view Biden's strengths and how do you view his weaknesses as the nominee? Uh, I think it's about who can beat Trump and bring us back to some kind of sanity. Um, I think people realize that there are a lot of problems to fix in the country, but I think the sentiment is let's just get us back to a point of equilibrium and then we can work on the problems. I think Biden fits the bill there. Um, That's what I can. That's his biggest strength, in my opinion. And, you know, Obama. Yeah, and his connection to Obama, um, and mm-hmm. certainly his uh, his robust support among the the black community. And I do think, just sort of circling back to something that we were saying earlier, that may have also contributed to his sharp uptick in support across the country. Because as we, as we know, Iowa and New Hampshire are largely white and sort of atypical yep. states in that way. And when you get to a more diverse state like South Carolina or Nevada, you will start to see a different uh, demographic turnout and, and people supporting different candidates. Um, so, Will, one of the perceived weaknesses about Biden is that uh, he has come up short with Latinx voters and in particular youth voters. Do you see that to be true? And if you do, how can he address that? 
I, I think it might be a little bit overstated at this point, just because we are still in the context of a primary election. Um, I think that uh, you've seen a remarkable shift towards the left among the younger generation. Um, and I think that that's something that reflects the lack of action that uh, folks who are in you know, the millennial generation and younger um, on particularly the issue of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's something that is uh, important for everyone to know, and especially folks who might be uh, sort of wringing their hands over worries about depressed youth turnout in the general election, um, I think that the folks, organizations like the Sunrise Movement and others who are uh, actively trying to mobilize the youth and, and even might have endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders in the case of the Sunrise Movement right. uh, are very clear that uh, the, the number one project is, is getting Donald Trump out of office. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the number of choices that, that he is, that uh, Trump has made to sort of roll back our progress on issues that are so important to those um, voters are uh, you know going to be the, the focus of a general election campaign. I think that will motivate people. Well, so yeah, you're, you're getting into my next question, which is the issue of motivation and enthusiasm. As we know, Bernie has just a very enthusiastic grassroots base, which Biden kind of doesn't. And I, I wonder, I want to ask both of you from your unique perspectives what your game plan is for getting voters and volunteers excited about a Biden candidacy. Um, Chris, we'll start with you. How do you view that prospect with uh, with indivisible I don't see uh, trying to motivate people to uh, support Biden as much as to support getting rid of Trump um, and I think people are very motivated um, I read some uh, Seattle Times article and said um, that 86 percent I think of Washington voters Democratic voters in the primary said that they were coming out of anger at Trump and so I think as we get closer to the reality of the the 2020 election coming, that we can tap into that anger once again, hopefully not too many more times, and really excite people about turning out against Trump, um, especially if he keeps doing things like what he said recently about cutting Social Security and Medicaid. Uh, Stephanie, you and I talked about getting T-shirts with that on. I'm dead serious. Yeah. And, you know, we can also talk about his handling of the virus. Um, I don't think the Fox News propaganda can shield him from this particular uh, issue. So I think it's going to be about getting rid of Trump at all costs. Well, there is the statistician who has become uh, quite noteworthy for calling the blue wave accurately, uh, Rachel Bittekoffer, who essentially is is, is making that point uh, quite a bit out on the, the talk mm-hmm. circuit and has predicted that this is really going to be an anti-Trump election. Um, Will, how does this track with what the Dems are planning on getting people excited about a Biden nomination? Yeah, I think that there's. Uh, I think we would first of all echo all of the uh, talking points that that Chris just laid out about you know that there is a lot at stake on the ballot that frankly has nothing to do with our nominee and it has everything to do with uh, you know Donald Trump having the executive power of the United States for a second longer than we can afford, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then I think there's also um, a lot to be excited about a Democratic presidency, right? Because I think that um, even in this primary, you've seen. Um, the Biden campaign come out with an agenda that is much further to the left than than either of the previous times he's run for president. Um, and I think that that's 
something to be excited about, right? Like he's embraced a uh, raising minimum wage. He's got a multi-trillion dollar plan to invest in clean energy, um, you know, substantial expansion of healthcare at the government or at the federal level. Um, and I think that all of those things are things that we're going to get on board with. Um, I also think that you're going to see uh, the reaction by the president uh, being so self-centered um, in this crisis while folks, relatives and friends and family members are falling ill um, and the small businesses uh, that Chris was talking about earlier having to sort of muddle their way through this response without any kind of uh, assurances from the office that they're going to be all right, um, you know, is, is something that's going to be a voting issue for folks, right? This is a crystallization of all of the reasons that having someone who's as unstable and, and selfish as Trump um, in charge of the country, uh, you know, there are consequences and we're feeling them right now. It brings it into really sharp focus. And I think that Biden's speech that he gave on Tuesday night was pretty exemplary uh, in terms of the sort of tone that he wants to set that is going to counter exactly the sorts of things that both of you have been talking about vis-a-vis Trump. Um, both candidates canceled their rallies due to coronavirus, but Biden gave one in Philadelphia that was clearly meant to pivot to the general. And I think uh, in terms of trying to, in many ways, set himself up as being the, the anti-Trump, um, he seemed to my thinking, more presidential than he had uh, in in previous speeches, uh, or maybe during this campaign at all. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts were on the speech itself, Chris. Yeah, I agree. It was it was a really good speech, and uh, he was it was good. Uh, he was calm. I thought he looked like a leader, presidential, if you will. Uh, I really liked it when he talked about returning to decency mm-hmm. and keeping our word. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been just so upset about is just how indecent Trump is, and we're you know we're we're a laughing stock uh, to the world, and um, I just felt that we would return back to a leadership position in the world. And I also really really appreciated uh, him trying to reach out to the other uh, candidates who um, had already dropped out, and to Bernie's uh, campaign and his followers. I, I liked it. Yeah, he said, we need you, we want you, and there's a place in our campaign for each of you. So clearly now he is trying to differentiate himself as the the front runner and starting to try to unify the party. Um, And then on Wednesday, Bernie gave a speech, and he did not concede, uh, though it seemed like he acknowledged that things were going to be uphill for him. He also indicated that he was going to push Biden to the left on some issues when they debate this weekend. Will, you've already kind of touched on the ways in which Biden has moved to the left uh, more so than any, you know, quote unquote, centrist moderate candidate has, um, at least in in my lifetime. How much do we uh, credit Bernie for that? Uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit, and I think that uh, what you saw in both of those speeches—you uh, know, Biden's from last night and, and Bernie's from this morning, or, or you know, early afternoon, depending on when, what time zone you live in—I uh, think is is a demonstration of, of why these candidates have held on to such uh, significant coalitions throughout this process. I mean, I know we all live in the the day-to-day news cycle, but uh, I think it's important if you look at sort of the historical polling average the rest, through the course of the primary. Uh, Vice President Biden has been in the poll position, uh, leading for the vast majority of this race, and, and we've seen, we saw why 
uh, on Tuesday night. And, um, you know, I think we also saw why Bernie Sanders is able to motivate such a passionate following um, with his extremely cutting diagnosis of, of the problems that are facing this country right now uh, in his speech today. And so I think that you're going to see um, both of those rhetorical appeals sort of woven together as we move through this process as they each kind of try to demonstrate uh, a trait of the other has a way to sort of appeal to the, the each person's coalition. And I think that we all need to be uh, conscious of being consistent in our messaging here about candidates sort of making up their own minds uh, as is appropriate for their campaigns as to how long to continue this primary. I think it's important that you know for all of uh, for any any Democratic primary voter who uh, was um, frustrated by calls on their particular candidate to, to drop out and endorse one of the other of the front runners, um, you know now is not the time to sort of exhibit that same behavior um, directed at the Sanders campaign, right? I think mm-hmm. as as long as uh, Bernie Sanders is raising um, you know legitimate uh, questions and, and engaging in a productive dialogue with with Vice President Biden, I think that uh, you know this is a healthy conversation for us to have. You know if it, mm-hmm. it starts to devolve into to personal attacks uh, on the part of you know, each camp supporters, I think that's counterproductive and, and ultimately does more harm to each each coalition than uh, than good. Yeah. And we're not seeing that come from either of the candidates, which I think is notable and laudable. And one can hope that that sort of thing would trickle down. I'll just follow up on something, Will, uh, just in terms of Bernie that I'd love to get your thoughts on. He said, we are winning the generational debate, but losing on electability, meaning that he feels that his ideas represent the future of the party and that it had better get on board. What are your thoughts? Do you agree with that? Uh, I think he's he's largely right in that respect, right? I think that in exit polls, which, you know, tend to be notoriously unreliable, but outside the sort of margin of error, you can read some uh, inferences of them. You've seen uh, 60% or, or more, um, and certainly healthy majorities in, in most of these states that voted last night, um, supporting some version of, of a single uh, payer government health care plan. Yep. Um, I think that the, the next question for the progressive movement is uh, with the Democratic Party is to try and do some um, sober self-reflection as to why you're seeing a majority of voters uh, support the principal sort of issue that the Bernie's putting forward, but for whatever reason, um, you know, not pulling the lever for him. And, and I think that there's, you know, a number of factors at play there, but I think there's, uh, you know, uh, definitely lessons to be learned. And, and, you know, I think he's right that going forward, um, you know, this next generation of voters, uh, as we become more reliable voters, are going to be reliably uh, more progressive. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and before we move on from the primary itself, I will ask you a question that is on so many people's minds right now, and I would love to get each of your takes on it. If Biden is the nominee, who would you like to see him pick as as VP? Maybe both for personal reasons for yourself and then also for more strategic reasons. Chris, what are your thoughts? I think he needs to pick a woman, and that is both a personal and a strategic reason. Any particular candidate? I don't know. I mean, Stacey Abrams comes to mind. Uh, I think she'd be fantastic, and I think she would excite a lot of people. And I think uh, someone that can, you know, transition to be our nominee in 2024, I think would be, and if that person was a woman, that would be ideal in my mind. Well, yeah, of course, keeping in mind that if Biden were to win, he would be the oldest president ever elected to a first term, I believe. Uh, Will, what are your uh, thoughts about a potential VP pick that you would like to see? 
Well, I think that, uh, you know, the lesson that we should have all learned <laughs> last April when, when Stacey Abrams was quoted uh, as, a, as an idea by the Biden campaign um, is that, you know, we want to make sure that we're respecting the agency of the people whose names we're, we're tossing around. <laughs> and uh, that they, they, of course, have to want it for themselves uh, before, you know, they can, um, you know, sort of be pushed into the role. And so, uh, but I do think that, you know, either of the candidates that are still left in the primary, if they become the nominee, are going to be on the older side, right? And so I think that you're going to want to see someone who's on the younger end uh, of the sort of options and uh, someone who's got to the energy and, uh, sort of enthusiasm um, to be an effective uh, campaigner and surrogate for the nominee, um, you know, through the general election. I think you're also going to want to see someone who uh, has significant name ID and, and has some celebrity to themselves, uh, because I think that uh, one of the, the most, if it is um, Vice President Biden at the top of the ticket, one of his more laudable qualities it has been his ability to share the spotlight. Um, and I think that he was a very effective partner um, for President Obama, and I think that you know he is um, unlikely to be threatened by the uh, sort of independent um, star power of, of a strong VP choice. So yeah. I think those those qualities. Um, there's a number of candidates who who meet that uh, description, and I think that you know that's one of the benefits of having such a, a varied field for the vast majority of the primaries. We've gotten a lot of exposure to some rising stars in the party. Well, yeah, and it sort of cuts both ways. Uh, Chris, you and I were talking very recently about the fact that we began this primary with the most diverse group of uh, candidates ever to run in uh, one of our two major parties, and we've winnowed it down to two septuagenarian white men. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the last people to drop out was somebody who I know that both you and I uh, supported, and that was Elizabeth Warren. She suspended her campaign last week. I was wondering if you could just take a minute to talk about some of the reasons, A, why you supported her, and then B, why you feel that she failed to advance. Yeah, I'm I'm still kind of working through all the feels about this, so no. I'll try to be articulate as, I, as, as articulate as I can. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm clear on why she appealed to me so much. I mean, not only was she a woman, but she was a person who brought, you know, similar experiences to so many American people and American families. Uh, She, she was a single mom who got fired for being pregnant and uh, she was a, you know, she got divorced and she worked her way up. And that is just someone with those, sets of real world experiences, I think is so important, especially in contrast to the current occupant of the mm-hmm. White House. Um, and uh, But from a policy perspective, uh, she is one of the few that really understands the systemic, economic, and democratic reforms that we need to make in order to uh, fix the country so that we can't end up with another Trump. I think that Trump uh, is a problem unto himself for sure, but I think the conditions uh, that created him uh, need to be fixed. And Elizabeth Warren, you know, understood that and talked about that very openly. And you know, everything from filibuster uh, reform to uh, DC statehood and all those other things. So that's why I really, really liked her. Um, in addition to her being a woman. Um, Agreed on all that. Yeah. And I I think as to why she didn't advance, uh, I think her toughness just broke too late. Uh, 
everyone saw how how she absolutely surged after she after that debate where she just took out Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> and everyone loved that. Yeah, it, it was pretty great. Yeah, and everyone you know really loved that. Um, and I'm sure she was advised not to be tough or go negative before that because sexism. Um, and so I, I actually think that that could have been a factor. I'm sure there's many more, but I haven't figured it all yet out yet. As I think about her, I realize that she makes me want to intensify my fight to flip the Senate because I think she would make an ideal Senate leader. And she is absolutely somebody who would end the filibuster and push for all the sorts yeah. of reforms that many of which need to actually start in the Senate. And so, yeah, um, she has yeah. not thus far endorsed a candidate and. There doesn't seem to be any sort of clear consensus on where her supporters go from here, which, in my mind anyway, gives the lie to this this idea of ideological lanes in a primary since she was, you know, supposed to have been cast in this progressive lane with Bernie. But how do you anticipate her supporters breaking uh, for either Biden or Bernie at this point, Chris? Well, I mean, we still saw a lot of people actually voting for her in our primary. Um, but I think that it's going to be 50-50 split between the two of them. I think there are ideological reasons for it, and there's there's also other reasons for it. Uh, it's splitting 50-50. Do you agree with that assessment, Will? Uh, I think so, and I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's at least what you're seeing in um, sort of, you know, polling when she was still in the race when you were, when voter or the respondents who said that they supported Warren as a first choice um, were asked who their second choices were. It, it split pretty evenly um, down the middle between uh, Biden and Bernie. I think that that's uh, less about ideology and more about the fact that, uh, and I think this is something that we all uh, need to sort of wrap our heads around more in this sort of fractured media age, is that it's really hard to break through and uh, and, and sort of establish a relationship and, and paint yourself as an entire human being uh, to a mass audience when you can't rely on, you know, sort of newspaper endorsements and uh, even, you know, not that we're going back to the days of three networks, but even just like a, a more regimented news cycle, I think social media and just the number of scandals per week that you come that come out of the Trump administration, make it hard to to build a narrative going forward as you're trying to introduce yourself to uh, to voters. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to make one other comment on the, on the Warren campaign. That's, that's more, uh, it's also applicable to the other campaigns who have, you know, been suspended at this point, which is I think that we're going to look back on 2020 and the primary as a real pivotal moment um, for the Democratic Party because, uh, and I think I was talking about this with a couple of friends a few days ago, that um, it's really remarkable how many plans, not just from the Warren campaign, although she marketed herself as, as the you know candidate who has a plan for everything, um, but from the other leading candidates as well, uh, the number of new ideas that were rejected into our discourse and, and the amount of policy that you can now see, you know, congressional challengers to in, uh, entrenched Republicans relying on um, who themselves wouldn't have the ability to spin up a whole policy shop. And I think that it's something that we can really, you know, look on with pride as Democrats through this primary process that we had a very uh, issues focused campaign. You know, there was in-depth discussion about how to pay for a single payer health care plan. You know, uh, former Mayor Buttigieg brought up uh, you know, the idea of judicial reform, um, you know, and so many other candidates had uh, signature issues, you know, um, 
Cory Booker's uh, baby bonds plan, for example, um, that you know mm-hmm. now are being converted into Senate legislation. So I think that um, you know for supporters of all of these candidates who have you know been winnowed out of the race, uh, you know the fighting for their agendas does not end with this presidential campaign. And you know if we are fortunate enough to do the work and and replace Donald Trump with a Democrat in the White House in 2021, there's going to be a lot of uh, advocacy work to, to push those policy priorities forward within Congress. So. Um, I think that there's here, here. a lot to be, yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for about the campaigns that were run this this cycle. Well, that's a really yeah. optimistic way, a wonderful way of, of looking at it. And it actually leads me into my last question, uh, which is about unity uh, going into November. As we know, Warren was an overwhelming favorite among indivisible members. And um, I'm, Chris, I'm just wondering generally, are you concerned about the sorts of divisions and ideological splits that we're seeing between Bernie and Biden supporters? And how do you see that working out with uh, Indivisible? Like, for example, how are you handling that with your group? I'm just asking people to stay positive and really talk about uh, the positive aspect of the candidate or the policy that they uh, are trying to uh, put forward. And um, I think the biggest thing, though, is that we just have to focus on our com- common enemy, who no. is Trump and McConnell. Yeah, and McConnell, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, that actually just really helps people sort of snap out of the, the nitpicking, because let's face it, uh, any of these folks would be a million times better than Trump. And so uh, we just need to refocus on who we're actually fighting against, and it's not each other. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, Will, I'll give you the last word this week. Um, How do the Washington Democrats see party unification? I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a difficult lift, I think. Um, There have been a lot of uh, rough feelings and a lot of uh, sort of verbal bloodshed um, in this primary season. How will the Washington Dems be working to pull it all together? Uh, I think it's actually not going to be as difficult as, as folks are making it out to be in the media, honestly. Uh, I think that a lot of this perception is driven by the fact that, um, you know, Twitter has turned into the uh, public square where every politician and therefore every journalist is sort of just putting out their opinions. Um, and I think that you're seeing among that slice of the electorate, uh, you know, those are the most highly engaged, firmly rooted in their uh, beliefs, um, sort of supporters. And I think that, you know, when you talk to voters at their doors and you sort of do outreach in that way, um, people are more concerned with the things that are impacting them in their everyday lives. And I think that there's something for all of us uh, to be um, reminded of, which is that if we are sitting here having this conversation or if we have the luxury of debating, um, you know, the relative merits of each of these candidates, it's coming from a place of, of a certain amount of privilege, right? It's not our children who are mm-hmm. sitting in cages at the border. It's, it's right. not, um, you know, our grandparents who might necessarily be, um, you know, having their social security benefits cut um, or our parents or ourselves, right? Like, um, and if we are feeling that personal situation, um, I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of game that's going to be made um, just in the regulatory actions alone if we have a Democratic president. And uh, and I think that, you know, uh, the the blessing in disguise of how terrible Trump's leadership is, is that he's going to continue to provide us no shortage of examples of, um, you know, the concrete differences removing him from office is going to make. Yep. Focus on the common enemy and uh, and hammer home that message about Social Security and Medicare. I'm I'm very, very serious about getting that made into a T-shirt uh, as we go Let's out and canvas. It. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
All right, you guys. Uh, thanks as always. Chris Petzold, thank you. Thank you. And Will Casey, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. And that's going to do it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you would like to get in touch, the email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thank you again to Chris Petzold and Will Casey. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.